Well, our theme this morning is public witness, and these are two powerful words. They're not two words that we often put together, and they're certainly not safe words when we put them together. Maybe to begin with a little bit about me, I grew up in a world of witness. I'm a third-generation missionary, though we returned to the States when I was young. uh, My home church stressed three things, overseas mission, Over half of our yearly operating expenses were given to overseas mission. The Bible, our church was well known for having a large open Bible on the front of the lawn, and we taught with that biblicism, and we sought to evangelize with them, and then also evangelism. We taught and we practiced evangelism to our friends and our neighbors. One might say, I was reared in witness. And I'm grateful for that heritage, and nothing that I share this morning in any way wants to question those three things. If anything, I want to lean into them a little bit more, and I want to integrate them together. You see, the problem in my home church, however, was that witness was entirely directed towards individuals. I became a pastor later in that church, and we had a robust program of evangelism. Can you imagine a 17-week series on Tuesday nights in which people came out to be trained in evangelism? We used the four spiritual laws, the Romans Road, the evangelism explosion questions as our basic toolkit. The goal in these was to get people to identify how their personal sins required a personal savior. And let me say up front, I'm very grateful for these years And nothing that I say wants to challenge those in any ways. We had many youth became Christian during those years, and they're still growing in their faith. To be fair, my home church did consider sin in social places, but we struggled to know what to do with those sins. My pastoral responsibilities took me into health where I worked with young teenagers who were struggling with eating disorders. It took me into complex social realities where we had families that were torn apart by divorce. I read Rolling Stone magazine. I watched MTV. I coached lacrosse in our local high school. And so my desire for witness was always trying to move into public places, but I struggled to know how to do it. And I especially struggled to know how it related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, if we begin with the individual, then our understanding of the gospel will be sized to fit that which we are focused upon. It's like holding a cup in your hand and dipping it into this majestic mountain stream. The river will always fill the cup, and that is a good and a beautiful thing, especially on a dry, hot day. But there is always more water in the river, and the gospel is like that. If our focus is upon the individual, we'll always enjoy fresh cool water. Of course, the converse is also true. If we only want to know how the gospel relates to social realities, we will always find wonderful treasures, but we may lose the individual in the mist. And here's the good news. We don't need to choose between the two. The gospel is big enough for the person, and it's big enough for society. Paul talks about how Christ is reconciling all things to himself. Years later, my family moved to Tanzania and we became immersed in the complexities of poverty 
in an African village. Now, you hear this word complexity in an African village, and that doesn't always make sense. We think of villages as nice, simple things, but we found ourselves immersed in that, com- that, that, that community, and we found that the poverty that we experienced there was unbelievably complex, or I'll use the language of thick. We moved to Tanzania to evangelize and to church plant. We were thrust into a world of poverty, agricultural decay, disease. I had a good theological toolkit to how to evangelize persons and how to church plant, or so I thought. But how does God relate to development? How does salvation relate to healing? How does the gospel relate to agriculture? I didn't have answers to those questions unless we think that this is just an issue for over there. I think we would say that the difficulties we face here in the United States are no less complex and the need for us to draw connections between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the public realities of everyday life no less dire. This past year has been one of the hardest year many of us in the United States have experienced a global pandemic leading to the horrific loss of life, and many of us have lost dear loved ones. Followed by social isolation and anxiety and depression causing tremendous mental illness, we have witnessed deplorable, horrific acts of of racism and have grieved and have wrestled and have struggled. And then we capped this year with one of the most contentious seasons of political divide where Christians, even seated in this room, have fought each other on behalf of political alliances. So how can we witness to these public realities, not just theologically engage them, but is there a gospel there? Can we actually witness in this situation. Of course, Christians have adopted different approaches to these matters. Some run headlong into public realities with an understanding of justice that may or may not have anything to do with Christ's death and his resurrection. They pursue poverty alleviation and really good things like human sex trafficking with great zeal, but without much connection at times with what it has to do with Christ or who he is or what he's doing in this world, and even less emphasis upon evangelism and personal holiness. And others like the church that I grew up in foreground Jesus Christ, but do so in a way that reduces salvation entirely to the individual. It leads them into evangelism, but where they struggle to know how to witness to the public realities around the person And in some cases, their theology leads to a form of Gnosticism where the whole goal is to leave this world and not to engage it. But here's the marvelous thing. If the gospel is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through Christ's death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins, where he is establishing, even as we sang, his kingship by the power of the Holy Spirit over all things, then we must take the fullness of the gospel seriously for the fullness of our life. 
Why do we struggle with public witness? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, especially for those of us who are white evangelicals, whether you like that word or not, we have a limited cultural toolkit that looks at everything through the individual and spiritual matters and not into public social and material affairs. For others, we associate public with what per people that perhaps we would label liberal do, and we're not always happy with how it takes them towards these areas, so we avoid it altogether. Others avoid public witness because of, let's be honest, historically we have not always played well as Christians in the public square. And so we don't want to be like them, and so we avoid public witness. Or perhaps, and let me hear touch a little closer to home, that public realities sit too near to us. They are the stuff of our affections, our ideologies, our ideologies, our idolatries in what Charles Taylor calls our social imaginaries. And because they are so near to us, we actually can't see them most of the time. We don't have cultural skills to actually exegete or unpack these things, and so we leave them alone, which ironically allows them to grow in power within us. And sin interpenetrates public realities, leading to a complexity or a thickness. What I experienced in this village in Tanzania, what we've experienced this past year, I think can be best captured by this lovely little phrase used by John Wesley of complicated wickedness. And I'm indebted to Dr. Christine Pohl for calling these words to my attention. When I first heard this phrase, I thought, this is what I've been trying to articulate, what I've been wrestling with, what I've been groaning with. Pohl describes complicated wickedness as a complex intertwining of several fundamental problems, the absence of true religion, a deep social alienation, degradation, and oppression, and acute physical need. It does not mean that our society is as evil as it can be. But what it means is that sin actually enters into the warp and woof of public realities. And we often think of public life as just discrete spheres like politics is here and economics is here and ethnicity is over there and health is over here. But what we actually realize or we experience in public realities is the interpenetration of those domains into each other. There's a layering. Think about a global pandemic. It is not just a health issue. It's a political issue. It's an economic issue. It's a race issue issue. It's a social media issue. And so what happens is when sin enters into these things, it actually enters into that complexity. And what it leads to is an integrated narrative. And I'm going to use the language of an integrated narrative because I think that's how most of us experience it. And there's great irony in the fact that while postmodernism rejects any meta narrative, our public world is constantly constructing new meta narratives that actually claim our allegiance. They want our whole life. And Christians on both sides of the political and social divide have been guilty and far too willing to endorse these public narratives and actually to use scripture to bring justification to them rather than allowing the biblical message to critique them. 
So here's the fundamental problem that we have. We've all been habituated into public realities in thick ways from the very time that we're born. We've been trained from childhood through practices that involve our minds and our bodies, affections, spirits, while reinforced by symbols, myths, and social imaginaries. I remember a time that I was in Africa and I was riding my bike on a dirt path and I was going from one village to another and it had rained recently and there were many other people that had ridden their bike ahead of me. So what happens is there was a rut and I was riding my bike along trying to stay out of the rut and eventually, boom, my wheels got in the rut. And I was just in the rut, and I was staying in the rut, and I was moving along, and then all of a sudden, my path went to the right, and I had a decision to make. The wise decision, and you know what, testosterone is not bring about wise decisions, but that's a whole different sermon. But the wise thing would have been to stop and to pick your bike up and move it out of the rut, but I thought, let me just keep going. And so I went to jump my tires out of the rut, and you can imagine the next thing I went, and this big white man is flying through the air, and I landed at the feet, and there were several youth there, and it was like a gift from God to them that day that this big white man comes flying through the air. But here's the reality is that we, have, we are all in a narrative. It's a narrative that we have been habituated in from the time that we were born. It's practiced in our family. It's from our social media. It's from our friends. It's from our churches even. And many of us don't even, we're not even able to see that public narrative. It's so deep within us. Well, we can't address complex problems with simple solutions. Years ago, I was in, when I was in Kenya, we had a failed election and then a near civil war that broke out. And the seminary that I was working at, we went around the country and we put on these reconciliation seminars. And God bless Drs. Medine and Craig Keener because they donated a thousand books of their their book on reconciliation in Africa. And we put on these seminars and we went around the country. And I still remember one time I was an at, and this was one of those cities that had faced some of the most horrific violence in what had happened. And we sat in groups with pastors in threes and four. And this one pastor said to me these words. He said, ever since I was born, I was told that those people did this to me. They took our land, they took our businesses, they raped our women. We were given names to call them. We wouldn't even call them according to their own name. Every day of my life I've been told this about these people. How am I to think about them differently? And while we may say that's an extreme example, every day of our lives we have been habituated into public realities in everyday life. We are every day habituated into social media. Our churches are separated and follow political ideologies rather than our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We have the same problem. We're in a rut and we can't get out of the rut. We've been habituated into complex realities and we try and address them with simple gospel truths. Now, please, don't hear me wrong. The gospel can be told simply, but here, what I want us to hear 
is that we have everything that we need. We have it in God's mission, the story of Scripture. Tomorrow I'm going to talk more specifically action items of how we can actually do this. But let me return to this passage that we read this morning. It's called the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew word here. So Shema Israel. And it serves a bit as the equivalent of the Lord's Prayer, perhaps, for the Old Testament. And it's a prayer in which the love of God is to orient our heart and our soul and our strength. And yet, the love is not just to stay in the individual, but as you hear this passage, the love of God and the laws of God that are to orient us to the love of God is to enter us out into all spaces of life. The passage takes us on a journey that involves roads and beds and hands and door frames and city gates. Christopher Wright says we must allow its message to impact daily life from breakfast to bedtime in person, in the home, and in the public arena. The reference to city gates in particular, as many of you know, in the ancient Near East, the, the, the city gates were the places where commerce took place, legal decisions took place, political decisions took place. Walter Brueggemann calls this passage a pedagogy of saturation. We have a narrative. We have the love of God. We have this incredibly thick story that is a pedagogy of saturation that needs to claim our whole lives. The mission of God is not a private story. It's a public story, but it includes privates in the midst. We do not need to choose between private and public as if kowtowing to enlightenment cartographies of this world. We need a pedagogy of saturation that takes us into all aspects of life. And that is what we have in God's word. That's what we have in this narrative. And we need to tell it as a narrative. And we need to tell it over and over again. God's mission needs to be told and retold and re-retold in a way that becomes the defining narrative of our lives. We've allowed public narratives to shape our affections. We need to tell this story in a way that includes more and more of Jesus Christ. Scripture weaves together a beautiful, thick tapestry of images to capture the significance of Christ's life and work. Tom Greggs has recently written a book about the atonement, and he says, despite the magnitude of this most important message of salvation of all time, so often within the church we have reduced the captivating, powerful, life-changing, history-shaping reality of the salvific work of the God of the gospel to reductive, overly conceptualized, semi-contractual, semi-limiting models of the atonement. And yet if you just read scripture, we are given a smorgasbord. We're given an incredible wealth of images of God's salvation. There's a breadth of images to the story of salvation that we should feast upon the rest of our lives. And we need more and more contextual voices in scripture. I'm going to talk more about this next week, but we cannot 
assume that the gospel tells one culture, that it is anti-culture, that it is supraculture, as if some Gnostic apparition, but it's a narrative that is so large and consuming and generous that it welcomes all of us into its drama and calls us to participate, to sing, to dance, to articulate. We need all of the resources of the body of Jesus Christ. And here's a critical part for many of us, that this narrative has to come into contact with our public narratives. We have allowed God's narrative to be something that is privatized in the church, and public narratives are all those things that we do outside of church, and we don't allow them to come together, but we've got to allow this narrative of God to come in contact with public life. We need it to interpenetrate public narratives, to call them into question, to disrupt their power that claim allegiance over our lives, to affirm any good that is in them, and to condemn any idolatry. God's mission needs to orient our affections. Our love has not gone deep enough. It needs to go deeper still. We still allow our political ideologies to be those affections that orient our everyday life and allow us to interpret how we interact with others and divide us from worshiping together and even come into our interpretation of Scripture. The love of God, we need this pedagogy of saturation. And it needs to capture our imaginations through participation in sacraments and liturgies. It's not enough to just read the text, but we need to enact the text. We need to participate it. And tomorrow we'll talk about how we participated in local congregations. And can I just say, one of the things that especially African Christianity has taught me so much is the incredible imaginative wonderful resources of liturgy and song and dance and doxology. And we need those resources to thicken our telling of God's story. And it needs to be embodied so that we are trained, our bodies are trained in the practices. In the same way that the public realm actually trains our bodies, God's narrative of scripture needs to retrain us, re-embody us. It needs to confront the powers in the world so that we take every thought captive and make them obedient to Jesus Christ. We need to see that public life is filled with powers and even the demonic, and we need to take every thought captive. We need to be able to see the idolatries in our world. And it needs to be nurtured in our social bodies and all our diversity through forgiveness, through reconciliation, and acts of mercy. And I think that's the embodiment, and that's where local congregations, Leslie Newbegin talks about local congregations are the hermeneutic of the gospel, and I'm going to spend more time talking about that tomorrow. God's mission calls us to participate in creation and for creation, understanding that our redemption is always linked with the rest of the created world. And it needs to grab us as individuals and diverse communities. 
It's a story that moves from particularity in a garden to universality in this marvelous city, but without ever leaving particularity behind, but actually drawing the threads of those particularities into a thicker form of universality. And isn't that what we enjoy today? This is who the body of Jesus Christ should be. This is our eschatological reality. This is our hope. And the challenge for us is to live more fully in it today. So we need more and more and more of the gospel. Into more and more and more of our humanity. Not our atomistic humanity. Not our autonomous humanity, but our public humanity. And we need more and more and more of this for God's world. You see, I went to Tanzania to church plant and to do evangelism. And in the process, God took me on a journey deeper into his mission. One might almost say that I found the gospel in Africa. I went to witness And witness found me. And it subsequently led me on this journey far greater than anything I could imagine. It's led me into realms of health and reconciliation and agriculture and politics and economics. You see, here's the beautiful story is that as we seek to witness to public life, it actually grows our Christology. It requires more of Christ. It it requires us leaning deeper into the gospel story. We're afraid that public witness might lead to relativism or pluralism or syncretism or any other ism that we could come up with. But the reality is that public witness takes us to evangelism of the individual as well as the social realities around them. It's a pedagogy of saturation that leads us into the fullness of life. Let me finish today and tomorrow, by the way, with reading a quotation by Leslie Newbegin, that great missiologist who is one of my heroes. Here are the words of Leslie Newbegin. He says, it is not so often acknowledged that evangelism means calling people to believe something which is radically different from what is normally accepted as public truth. And that it calls for a conversion, not only of the heart and the will, but of the mind. He says, a serious commitment to evangelism, to the telling of the story which the church is sent to tell, means a radically Radical questioning of the reigning assumptions about public life. It is to affirm the gospel not only as an invitation to a private and personal decision, but as public truth, which ought to be acknowledged as true for the whole of the life of society. May God lead us deeper into public witness.